Hi, this is Michael from The Intersection. Thanks for joining us. This first episode is called White Australia Blues. We take a look at how Australia's long-running White Australia policy affected the development of music in this country during the 20th century. Please enjoy the show. Come a little bit closer, if you will, please. Thank you, smile, mission pack, show. From the studios of GTV9 in Melbourne. Would you like whiskey? Would you like a wine? Would you like a bottle of beer? No, on your toes, here's the way it goes. Just so everybody knows. Do you believe that the, the so-called white Australia policy will always be a stumbling block? I don't think it's such a stumbling block as people pretend, but that it's important for us, I haven't the slightest doubt. That we should maintain it the way it is? As long as we possibly can, we ought to aim at having a homogeneous population. I don't want to see reproduced in Australia the kind of problem they have in South Africa or in America. For these views, of course, in the past, Sir Robert, you have been described as a racist. Have I? That's one of these jargons, isn't it? One of these mod words you call a man a racist. That's a song called Basin Street Blues, performed by Louis Armstrong. As a single, that song reached number 10 on the Australian chart in July 1954. In October of that year, Armstrong and his band, the All Stars, arrived in Australia for a concert tour, brought out here by the legendary promoter Lee Gordon. In order to enter Australia, Armstrong and band needed special visa exemptions. Why? Well, the Australia of 1954 was still hanging on to the white Australia policy. As a result, most non-Anglo musicians were barred from performing in this country. There were occasional exceptions to this rule. A non-white solo musician could perform in Australia so long as they stood some 60 centimetres away from any white musicians on the stage. A whole band of non-white musicians, however, was definitely prohibited. This had been the case since 1928, which was the one and only time an African-American jazz group had toured the country. So what happened in 1928, and who was that first African-American band to tour Australia? Well, they were known as the Sunny Clay Plantation Orchestra, and we'll be hearing a lot more about them today. 
The Sonny Clay tour was part of a vaudeville show called Coloured Idea, which also featured other African-American acts. This 1928 tour is not exactly unknown. It has been researched and discussed by academics and much of their work inspires this episode. In particular, the historian Deidre O'Connell has gone deeply into the story and has written a book called Harlem Nights. One part of the story that I find fascinating concerns its position within Australian live music history. If we consider that jazz, like rock music some years later, is a blues-based form that was often derided as, quote, low art or low culture, then the Clay Band may have been the first exponents of such culture to come to this country. Like much great music, the sound has that certain physicality and earthiness that is hard to describe, but you know it when you hear it. Or see it. So many bands in that lineage would have followed them, whether it was jazz, blues, rock and roll, punk, hip-hop. The devil's music, let's just say. The Sunny Clay Plantation Orchestra surely deserve a place at the very top of the honour roll of bands who have toured these shores. But of course, that's not the reason why the Sunny Clay Tour is notorious. Above all else, this story is an example of a time where white Australia's racism was legally sanctioned. It's a history that many would prefer to forget and which many more would prefer to avoid investigating. At this point, we would like to warn about some seriously racist comments which were used in newspaper articles and in speeches in 1928. We will be quoting from these sources around about halfway through the show, and whilst we have censored certain words, it's not hard to work out what those words actually are. For anyone offended, particularly African-American or First Nations people, we sincerely apologise. Sonny Clay was a pianist, drummer and band leader, based for most of his career in Los Angeles. He was 28 when his band, the Plantation Orchestra, got the chance to tour Australia as part of a review called Coloured Idea. The band recorded a piece called Australia Stomp prior to sailing from San Francisco. There is a photo of the band exiting the ship in Sydney in January 1928 and performing this tune as they came ashore. In the centre of the photo is Ivy Anderson, later a featured vocalist with the Duke Ellington Orchestra. As mentioned, the Clay Band was in fact part of a tour called Coloured Idea, a review where, in addition to the jazz group, there was also a gospel quartet and various solo performers. The Coloured Idea tour was advertised in print media by a caricature of an Afro-American male eating a watermelon. African-American musicians had toured Australia before 1928, but they were often gospel performers and were not subject to the same scrutiny that a jazz group would receive. But even then, they were not welcomed by the Musicians' Union and various media, and their very presence here walked a fine line with the White Australia policy. To keep it brief, the White Australia policy was actually an informal name that grew out of the Immigration Restriction Act, one of the first bits of legislation passed by the Federated Australian Parliament in 1901. 
Put simply, it was a legalised method for keeping Australia's permanent population white-skinned and Anglo-Celtic. In truth, it went much further than that and created an overall culture of whiteness. Needless to say, it also further entrenched the dispossession of Indigenous Australians from the new federation. This white Australia culture was a stubborn one, and we can even hear it as late as the 1960s in the excerpt from Prime Minister Robert Menzies which we heard at the beginning of this episode. But let's get back to the 1920s. Performing arts, the case of touring non-white performers was a little more nebulous because they were visitors rather than immigrants. But in 1923, the Australian Musicians' Union tried to introduce a formal prohibition of non-white musicians from performing in Australia, citing the white Australia policy as the justification. The following year, they got particularly concerned about an Italian vocal quartet attempting to tour Australia and voiced their grievances to the Minister for Home and Territories, Sir George Pearce. Pierce would not outright rule against non-white artists visiting Australia, but nonetheless assured the union representatives, I have already refused two applications to import Negro bands. Coloured men will never be allowed to come in. However, the Coloured Idea Review were granted entry four years later with a different minister at the helm, and their tour started with shows at Sydney's Tivoli Theatre. The reviews seemed to be generally favourable, with many pointing out the apparent novelty of the syncopated rhythms of the group. It is realised that jazz as played by a European and jazz as played by a real Negro are entirely different. It is all in the syncopation. One, brought to America by the original African Negroes, is natural, and the other, an acquirement, is artificial. Everyone's Magazine, 1928. Most reviews mentioned the large crowds and the favourable reception by audiences. The band also did a radio broadcast on station 2FC, now known as Radio National. But the complaints and the derision were never far off. Even before the band arrived, the Sydney Sun newspaper referred to the group as, quote, Sonny Clay's Coloured Coons. Representatives of the Musicians' Union met Prime Minister Stanley Bruce in March to urge an embargo on foreign musicians entering the country at a time when many Australian musicians remained unemployed. The union's position may be viewed as a simple labour issue, but race was still at its core. As one article says, quote, Discussion turned strongly on visiting American players rather than the Italian orchestra which was visiting at the time. By the boasting roast on the deep dark continent By the bugs and the flies and the monkey guys All sleep in warm content There lives a mighty man A mighty man is he If you want to know just who he is That guy is Mr. Me I'm Mr. African Great big and gaggy man With a jug on my hip and a smile on my lip As big as a moving van I'm Mr. African From Red Red Hot Sedan With a stovepipe hat and a rattlesnake's bat I'll give you a big dark hand When I get hot it's friendly me when I get cold, I can't get cold cause I'm an African. I'm Mr. African, got plenty gals on hand. And I take my gin from a tiger skin, I'm the wildest kind of man. The 
Coloured Idea Review travelled to Melbourne to play shows at Melbourne's Tivoli Theatre, where the full houses continued. The vaudeville nature of the review meant that all audiences were seated. To rectify this, a Melbourne promoter booked the Clay Band to play separate shows following the Tivoli concerts at a dance hall called The Green Mill, which stood on what is now the Melbourne Arts Centre. This time dancing would be allowed and a midnight show would be performed. A similar engagement was to be made back in Sydney at the tour's end. Maybe it was this fact, dancing and late night shows, that finally pushed the authorities over the edge. And then the shit hit the fan. At about 4am on March 24, police raided an apartment block in East Melbourne, accompanied by a reporter from the Melbourne Truth. According to the Truth, band members and six white women had been observed through open windows, indulging in conduct which, quote, cannot be described, for the party was a veritable orgy. When the police and the truth reporter forcibly entered the flat, they were confronted by, quote, Empty glasses, half-dressed girls, an atmosphere poisonous with cigarette smoke and fumes of liquor, and lounging about the flat, six niggers. The Melbourne Truth, Thursday, April 1928. The Truth dedicated an entire front page to numerous stories about the raid. It was under the headline, A blackout for Sonny Clay's noisome it also triumphantly reported that the rest of the Clay Band's performances had been cancelled and moves were afoot to have them deported. The rest of the media stirred up the outrage. Bacchanalian scenes between theatrical nigger troupe and white girls rouse a continent. White girls and black jazz bandsmen. Shocking depravity. In federal parliament a couple of days later, the member for Bass, David Jackson, asked, has the attention of the Minister for Home and Territories been drawn to a newspaper report published under the following heading? Nude girls in Melbourne flat orgy. Negro comedians as partners. If so, has any action been taken in regard to the matter? Does the Minister not think that in the interests of a white Australia and moral decency, such permits to such persons should be refused? In response, the Minister, Sir Neville House, replied... My attention has been drawn to the report referred to by the Honourable Member and action has been taken. The Negroes will sail from Australia on Saturday next. Former Prime Minister Billy Hughes got in on the act and even referenced lynching for good measure. The land of liberty sends us these scum, these black beasts, to entertain us and this is what they do. If what happened in Melbourne the other day had taken place in a southern state of America... Those Negroes would not be going away on Saturday. They would not have lived the night. Apparently this was met with great applause. Smith's Weekly magazine printed Hughes' speech under the headline, quote, Billy Hughes lights the fiery cross. A few days later, a short article appeared in most Australian newspapers under the headline, Federal Cabinet Decision. 
The report said, quote, The Federal Cabinet yesterday discussed the question of allowing coloured musicians into Australia in the future. It is reported that the ministers decided in future to forbid such tours. Amidst all this moral and racial hysteria concerning the East Melbourne raid, it may not have been widely noticed that, in fact, no actual laws had been broken by the band members or the women in the apartment. No drugs were found, despite the truth's references to cocaine, and unlike many states in the US, it was not illegal for a black male to be in the company of a white female. Perhaps in recognition of this, the best the police could come up with were to charge the women with vagrancy, a charge usually levelled at sex workers. But when they appeared in court a few days later, all the women were able to prove their addresses and income, and so the charges had to be dropped. Not, of course, before the women were named and shamed by the press, their pictures published and their professions and addresses listed. They endured an all-male public gallery at the courthouse, which, according to the Brisbane Telegraph's correspondent, numbered about 200 men inside the court and 1,500 outside the court. The huge mob presence was perhaps explained by the Labor Daily, who headlined their story, Hostile Crowd Waits for Negroes. The mob were apparently under the belief that some of the clay band were to be called before the court, unaware that they had not been charged or summonsed. With the rest of the tour cancelled, the Sunny Clay Orchestra took the train back to Sydney in order to take the next ship to California. At Sydney Central Station, they were met by a battery of press and photographers. More ominously, a group of about 200 white males were waiting in the station's grand concourse and followed the touring party out to the cab rank whilst being held back by police all the way. None of the press at the time reported further on this mob presence except to say that no actual violence occurred. One newspaper, the Labor Daily, commented that one band member caused a stir by appearing in a plum-coloured suit with heliotrope spats and a gold bracelet on his right wrist. Shock horror. The band travelled to their hotel in Darlinghurst but were told they were now unwelcome, a pattern that appeared throughout Sydney that very day. The press report says, The Negroes trudged the city all day in search of lodgings. They walked around carrying their bags and overcoats and it was not until 8pm that the last found a home. Clay had told the press that the Melbourne raid was, quote, a deliberate frame-up and that in fact the whole tour had been, quote, hounded ever since we landed in Australia. He spoke of the band's lodgings being broken into during the Sydney leg of the tour and that, quote, the same party dogged us to Melbourne. As it turns out, Clay was right. Decades later, unearthed documents proved that the Commonwealth Investigation Branch, an early version of what we now know as ASIO, had surveyed the band in Sydney on the grounds that they were consorting with white women. the Sunny Clay Plantation Orchestra sailed from Sydney, never to return. In an editorial, the Hobart Mercury said, There is a general feeling that the fewer Negroes we have in the future, either at theatres or in the prize ring, the better. We are white Australia, and frankly, we do not want them. 
American Negroes are not allowed to appear in the ring against white men in most of the American states, and the fact that we have allowed it here is either an illustration of our extreme broad-mindedness or our utter stupidity. Things slowly began to loosen up when American soldiers came to Australia during World War II. Black military personnel were, of course, still segregated in the US military, but in Sydney, a black services club, dubbed the Booker T. Washington Club, opened on Albion Street, Surrey Hills. The club itself was not segregated, and Indigenous Australian men and women frequented the club as well as the white Australians who wanted to go there. Whilst attempts were made to have the club shut down, it survived until the end of the war. Dances were held two nights a week, and crucially, there was a crossover between enlisted African-American jazz musicians and white Australian jazz musicians, many of whom played at the club and gained invaluable experience. Walking with my baby, she got great big feet. She long, lean and lank and ain't had nothing to eat. But she's my baby, and I love her just the same. Crazy about that woman, cause Caledonia is her name. Caledonia! Caledonia! What make your big head so hard? Ma, I love you. Love you just the same. I'll always love you, baby, cause Caledonia is your name. An offshoot of the black American presence during the war appeared in the Australian youth cult known as Bodgies and their female equivalent, Widgies. They were a predominantly working-class inner-city crew, and in Australian historical recollection, they often get misrepresented as being similar to the rocker culture of the late 50s. But in fact, the early bodgies were a sharply-dressed contingent, favouring zoot suits, tailored outfits, dangling keychains, heavily inspired by African-American culture and music. In Sydney, many bodgies in the post-war years would hang around the docks and buy jazz and rhythm and blues records from visiting American Navy or merchant seamen. Cultural historian John Clare describes the look of the bodgie as, quote, an incredibly tapering form, like Batman or an exiled king wrapped in his cloak. The sight of a four full of them jitterbugging and jiving can be left to the imagination. During the war, many African-American troops were based in far north Queensland and they had a clubhouse in Townsville where a similar crossover of American and Australian musicians occurred. A singer from Cairns, Dulcie Pitt, was one of them. Of Indigenous Australian and Jamaican background, she reinvented herself as Georgia Lee and went on to become one of the top exponents of jazz and blues in Australia during the 50s and 60s. She became only the second female singer to release a full-length album in Australia, titled Georgia Lee Sings the Blues Down Under, and it is baffling as to why her career is so little known. He was tall and he was skinny, he was thin and he was lean, he had eyes like pools of water and a head in his dream. That floating sound is full of sorrow, it makes me sad to sing, but it's the sound of the blues. With 
that's known as the Yarra River Blues. And so in 1954, the Louis Armstrong All-Stars got their exemptions to enter the country. Their tour was well received and they returned for a nationwide tour in 1956 and many times afterwards. There was also another tour by African American musicians in 1954. Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, to my house, I'm gonna give you candy. Come on to my house, to my house, I'm gonna give you everything. Ella Fitzgerald was brought to Australia by Lee Gordon to play on a tour that included Buddy Rich and Artie Shaw. Fitzgerald and her entourage missed the first few shows because they had been forced to leave their Pan Am flight in Hawaii. They had been booked in the first class section but were not allowed to board for the trip to Sydney. Pan Am's Australian branch were apparently responsible as they sought clarification as to whether any Australian laws were being broken by flying a group of African-American musicians into the country. The white Australia policy continued to be slowly dismantled and by 1966 the last of the original Immigration Restriction Act was abolished. But the racist policy certainly had a sting in its tail when it came to Australia's exposure to African-American artists. Historian Bruce Johnson has argued that Australian jazz for many years exhibited not only a racial and ethnic homogeneity, but also, in his words, an extremely narrow emotional range. It contained very little of the physicality, earthiness or smutty humour of much American jazz. Instead, Australian jazz was embedded in a tradition of, quote, Anglo-Saxon prudery. Much of this, it could be argued, was due to a lack of access to touring African-American musicians as well as to the overall whiteness of Australia at the time. If we take a look at a sample of African-American musicians who performed in Australia from 1955 through to the early 60s, there was, in jazz, Billy Eckstein, Thelonious Monk, the Oscar Peterson Trio, the Lionel Hampton Band, Dizzy Gillespie, Sarah Vaughan, Coleman Hawkins, the Modern Jazz Quartet and Carmen McRae. Stepping away from jazz, we can add Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, Odetta, Little Richard, Big Joe Turner, Lloyd Price and Gene McDaniels, mostly touring with black American bands. The turnaround in just a few short years really was remarkable. Not all of these touring artists enjoyed their time in Australia. For the standards of American musicians at the time, the nightlife was very limited. Chuck Berry toured in 1959 and apparently hated the place. He wrote back in the USA on a peak of homesickness whilst on his Australian tour. Jukebox jumping with records like in the USA. 
Australian audiences, however, still missed out on a lot of formidable African-American artists. For instance, no Coltrane, no Mingus, forget about Albert Eiler, Archie Shepp, there were few Motown or Stax artists until after the 60s, no Sly and the Family Stone or Funkadelic in the 70s, no James Brown until 1988. And also in 1988, Miles Davis finally made it here for his one and only tour. certainly cannot be said that this absence of truly great black performers touring Australia was purely a result of Australia's racist history. Plain old economics would have had a lot to do with it as well. But it would have been intriguing if any of the artists of the late 60s, particularly any associated with the black power movement, had visited this country. There is a fair chance this music may have been influential on Aboriginal Australian protest and it is tempting to speculate that white authorities and media may have at least wanted to act similarly in 1968 as to how they did in 1928. On the subway Yeah, I thought the man digging on me But the dude was hung up in a mass of confusion As to who I was, he thought he was trying to see But you see, but you see Me knowing me, black proud and determined to be free Could plainly see my enemy, yes, yes Looking now at a 1980 copy of the Australian rock magazine Ram. It carries an interview with Tina Weymouth of the Talking Heads. The interview is promoting the fourth Talking Heads album Romanian Light and its subsequent tour in which the band doubled in size augmented by African-American members such as Bernie Worrell of Funkadelic and top session players like bass player Buster Cherry Jones and singer Dillette McDonald. When asked whether the tour would make its way to Australia, Weymouth said, quote, We'd love to come down, but some of the members are a bit sensitive about coming to Australia. When questioned further, she adds, Well, you know, they get it from the grapevine, from black friends who've been there. They feel it's a racist country, that they're not welcome. The interviewer, Greg Taylor, concludes the article saying, quote, It's interesting to note that it's not just the half of the world who live in Asia or Africa who have this impression of Australia, and it's not just South Africa that some people with principles about prejudices will boycott. Seventy-seven percent of Australians um, agree with John Howard's actions on the campaign. What happened to the others? The thing is to use military force uh, against the uh, refugees, isn't that uh, a little overkill? A spokesman for the line that owns the ship says Australian SAS troops are in danger of breaking the laws of piracy. 
Undoubtedly, this is the most popular decision as far as the Australian public is concerned the government's made during its reign. If we're just talking about music and touring international bands, then one thing is clear. Since the 1980s, Australia's concert circuit has been, finally, very well represented by musicians from all over the world. But other things we've touched on in this episode have had no such happy ending. The long tail of white Australia has never really gone, and if anything, it's had fresh impetus in the last 20 years. Witness the extraordinary legislation which has seen refugees detained for years at a time. Witness the history wars. The way that white Australia gets very defensive about acknowledging that this country was founded on an act of invasion, the dispossession of Indigenous people, a whole lot of bloodshed, and not a lot of accountability. For white Australians, like myself, how much do we really know about these foundations? And how much do we care? In the case of this episode, and its grappling with the white Australia policy, how many of us really knew the sort of language that newspapers in 1928 were using? Newspapers, in some cases, which are still published today. It's not exactly ancient history, yet many of us act as if it was. The excuses are well known. It happened everywhere. Other places were worse. It was a long time ago. That may be the case, but why don't we know more about it? Do we want to know more? I wish that this problem were not out. Thank you for listening to The Intersection. My name is Michael Fisher, production by Rob Marchenberg. You'll find a playlist of all the music in this episode in the show notes. We'd like to give special thanks to Eastside Radio, 89.7 FM. You can contact us via email at theintersection at eastsidefm.org. The Intersection was recorded on Gadigal land. Sovereignty never ceded.